Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Dan Friday is on the show today. Dan is a glass artist. Now what's a glass artist, you ask? Well, he's a glass blower. You may have an idea of what a glass blower does. Glass blowers take glass and put it in an oven that is thousands of degrees. They take it out in its molten state and shape it into shapes and colors that just do not seem possible. Now, Dan's glass art definitely has a Pacific Northwest indigenous aesthetic, likely due in part because of his roots growing up as a member of the Lummi tribe. Dan is a protege of some of the greatest most preeminent glassblowers in the world, including Dale Chihuly. And to this day, he works for Chihuly. But Dan has developed a distinct and unique style that makes his pieces really stand out as Friday glass. I had the privilege of seeing some of Dan's work at the Stonington Gallery in Seattle in Pioneer Square. And words cannot do justice to the artistry and craftsmanship in his work. I'm talking about intricate baskets, owls, ravens, tribal totems of all kinds. I also saw a lot of his work in his studio in Seattle, where the interview took place. His work is shown throughout the United States and throughout the world. But if you can't make it to any of the galleries or museums showing his work, go online and check out his website, FridayGlass.com. It was such a pleasure talking to Dan, because even though he's a world-class artist, He's humbled down to his core and is first and foremost, just a super nice guy with a great story to tell about his journey into the world of glass blowing. So please enjoy this wide ranging discussion with glass artist, Dan Friday. Dan Friday, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate you making time for us. I'll just start off by telling you, I just got back from the Stonington Gallery. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. To, saw your show down there. Yeah, that was perfect timing because it is uh, kind of the end of my 2019 push and the Stonington show is uh, usually in the July, August, September area. And yeah, so I worked real hard on that. Work. Yeah. Amazing work. Just stunning from a, a color standpoint. Like how do you, <laughs> I won't get into the, the how-to part too much in this podcast, but as someone who's not familiar with glass art, I look at the colors that you're able to use in these pieces. And I looked also online at how this is done, including videos of you uh, doing this on YouTube. And it's just remarkable how you're able to incorporate color into something that is just a blob, you yeah. know, in an oven. It's a liquid. Yeah. Literally. yeah. So how do you, how do you do that? How do you incorporate color? Well, uh, there's a bunch of different techniques and uh, it can take a long time to develop those. Um, again, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So many, you know, glass has this great history that's about 4,000 years old. And a lot of the techniques are uh, literally thousands of years old. But then trying to add your own twist to them or uh, your own contemporary color format. Um, again, so most of the color we get comes from Germany. It's... Uh, and there's a, a company that was based out of New Zealand, but has most recently moved to the United States. But we buy like a bulk color. And so if you think of like a uh, condensed can of orange juice, 
it's really similar. We add this like little chunk of really dense German color to the clear color that we melt, which is basically the gallon of water to the can of orange juice creates this color. Well, we add a, just a little chunk of this German color to the clear color we we melt here in the States. And uh, together, they, they that's kind of one base way. There's hundreds of different ways to color the glass. There's canes, frit, uh, color bar, powder. Each one kind of has a different technique. A lot of what I like in you and in, in the work that you saw is I use a lot of translucent uh, applications of glass, whereas sometimes the powder and maybe you saw like the skull or the anchors have powder and they kind of look more opaque, which means you can't see through them. But there's, yeah, there, I enjoy playing with that. That's kind of where I have some fun and some artistic leeway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me start off the the biographical part of this podcast with kind of a, a broad question. When I look at glass as an art form and I see how it's made and how it's shaped and formed into art, what comes to mind is a medium that is extremely difficult to work with compared to, say, picking up a pencil and drawing or a blob of clay and start to mold the clay. Anybody can pick up a pencil, get a book from Amazon, how to draw. Anybody can slap some clay around and try to turn it into art. But the barrier to getting into glass work, it just seems huge. So how did you find your way into that space? Well, you're absolutely correct. It really has a high cost of entry. And that's what I think a lot of people, it has this really stiff learning curve and it can be five to 10 years before you start making work that you either going through just learning these techniques. It's a lot of, it's like being a musician. I'll use that analogy a lot. Like, you know, 10,000 hours, you know, before you start to create or sound, you know, have some sort of semblance or legs right. in the medium. But then it's it's such an expensive art form. Historically, it's it originally started in uh, Europe and, you know, there's this long Venetian history with it. And a lot of times it was only made in a factory setting with access to designers to kind of design the forms. And I think uh, a large part of uh, America's contribution is the studio art glass movement where Henry Halem, Dale Chihuly, Fritz Reisbach, uh, Harvey Littleton, a lot of these guys kind of with the American uh, go-to-itness kind of started doing it in the garage in the back rooms of these facilities and universities kind of brought the art form to individual artists as also the maker and the designer. And uh I, I'd say that, you know, that's that's a big part of what happened. How I got into it, uh, I guess, was the question is uh, I walked into uh, a glass blowing factory in Boward, you know, and Seattle is kind of this great hub for uh, glass working. And, uh, you know, a friend's mom worked at the place called the Glass Eye. I was 20 years old and I had gone to vocational tech school as a mechanic. I owned a tow truck. I was on this path to be a car gypsy of shorts or whatever that is. And, but the, when I saw the avenue of, of working with glass, being able to create things with my hands, as opposed to fix it, you know, working on car, I just knew that's what I was going to do. And so that was a, that was a great moment for me, I think. So the, the craft of creating glass artwork, if I'm thinking about this correctly, let me know or, or not, but it seems like, there's a, an intense period of learning, the stiff learning curve, where you're really just focusing on the nuts and bolts. 
hand skills, playing the chords, learning the notes, learning the rhythms, uh, just the choreography of it all. It's, it's a team sport too. You know, as if you, like you mentioned, if I was a painter or a potter, I could just disappear into my studio. I put on whatever music I want to listen to. You know, I sip my tea, I touch it, I walk away from it, I take a break, come back. Well, glass is like, it's like this fire drill at 6.30 in the morning. You're like, okay, we're all going to meet at 7. We're all going to work on this thing that I've been, you know, I've rented this time. I'm paying you guys to be here. Um, you know, in the beginning, there's not as much of, uh, you know, a, a, there's a lot of work trade. And uh, you start, at, what's as cool is you you start like an apprentice too, you know, because you are trying to develop those skills. So a lot of times you find a mentor or a, a more established artist to kind of, to you know, to work for essentially and or work for free. You know, that's a nice thing about being 20 when I started doing this is like, I guess I can show up for free today because I need, you got to get the chops yeah. to do it. And was Dale Chihuly a, a mentor? To you? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I feel really fortunate again, just by proxy of being in Seattle, there's this great, you know, you can walk into all these world famous glass shops and Dale Chihuly's Boathouse was one of them. I went from working at the glass eye factory, you know, as a tech building equipment, you know, using kind of some of my me mechanical vocational skills, you know, and I just knew that it was the path to becoming a glass blower at that point. You know, once, you know, some of his Dale Chihuly's legacy, like the Pilchuck glass school. And when I finally went to the Pilchuck glass school, just kind of being exposed to this world of glass art as a whole, I started working for Dale in, in 1999 and I still work for him today. It's a, uh, I feel, you know, he's, I've learned a lot working there. Yeah. So how did you get that opportunity to work for Dale? Well, again, just as, as somebody that helps him create his art, you know, as a glassblower, as a hired gun, kind of, I've worked in a lot of different capacities for Dale as a, uh, you know, employee. Now I'm an employee with benefits. It's one of the unique situations in the glass art world to have a steady paying job. If you're not working for a museum or a university or something, we, a lot of guys do what I call like the Seattle shuffle. You just get a whole list of phone numbers and you're like, where am I working next week? Where am I working two weeks from now? And, you know, a lot of that is supplemented by like, you know, working at a bar or uh, there was in 2008, I went back to working on cars after, you know, a long time and <laughs> working, I worked for a Mercedes shop. And again, I was just reminded that that's not necessarily, <laughs> I'm highly unemployable if I'm not a class artist <laughs> at this point in my life. One trick pony. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So how does the, um, knowledge of being an auto mechanic translate into, uh, the skill set that you need to be a glass blower? Um, working with my hands, three dimensional, you know, and, you got to wear a lot of hats when you work with glass. Um, not everybody does every facet of it. You know, I, I subcontract out a lot of the, like I'll have a guy do metal work, but you can see I've got my welder here. We're sitting in my studio. You can see I've got a full glass shop. You walk by the furnace when you came in. Uh, I don't do my large scale installation work here. Um, I typically rent uh, a larger artist studio space, which is really common. There's either co-ops or, you know, Pratt Fine Art Center in Seattle. There's another one in Everett called The Shack. Um, there's a, a handful of independent artist-run shops. But again, it takes, you know, it takes such a community to do this. Like, I can't just, back to that painter potter analogy I was saying, I can't just show up and work solo. I've got to collaborate, you know, I've got to bring a team together. We collaborate on making whatever it is is my design. And it takes literally, you know, six to eight hands to create a lot of these pieces. 
So, uh, you know, although I am the designer, it, it really is like being in a band or this sort of like choreography, more or less, of, of creating glass work. Yeah. The YouTube video that I'm referring to is uh, Corning Museum of Glass. Oh, yeah. Um, appearance that you made last year. Yeah. And uh, I watched this. Well, I didn't watch all three and a half hours of it, but it's literally three and a half hours of you with this team of people. Yeah. And anybody who is listening, I, I recommend going to YouTube and checking this out. You don't have to watch the whole thing, but, no, you know, yeah. just get bits and pieces of it. You see the process from start to finish and you you literally see inside of the oven. They have a, a camera yeah. inside the oven. <laughs> Talk about getting, uh, you know, for glass blowers, you can totally geek out on these videos. Oh, I would absolutely. imagine. But um, what was remarkable about it is I think, you know, it does kind of look like a shop like a mechanic shop in a oh. way. There's a lot of tools, mm -hmm. you know, like in, in big gloves to protect you from getting burned and pliers. And it's not, you, you wouldn't look at the the setting, the milieu and say, this is where art is going to be created. Yeah. It, it, there's so much resource that goes into glass making too. I mean, like you said, there's all the metal work, all the plumbing, all the electrical to keep the furnace going. A lot of times you need, like at Corning, they have state of the, Corning is like a state of the, art experience you know if you have never been you should go they have the best like historical collection of glass i mean it's just so educational and for an independent artist like myself that residency is huge for me you know they supply the team uh the facility it's not untypical for me to uh when i rent an eight-hour day amass a team of three or four people to spend you know just a baseline twenty five hundred dollars for eight hours to create maybe three pieces or, or not glass breaks. That's yeah. part of the, uh, <laughs> it's part of the moth, the flame uh, aspect of it. It, you know, I don't know if it would be as valuable as it is if it <laughs> didn't have that sort of like fragility to right. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And those people that were responsible in this YouTube video, you see, um, you know, when you're done shaping or, or torching or whatever you're doing to the piece and it needs to go back in the oven, there's a person. And does that person have a name? Like, is there a designation for that, that person that takes that piece and puts it back in the oven? So the, what they're doing is taking flashes and that's uh, a highly trusted assistant, uh, that position. And uh, there's different kind of levels, but I mean, every job is important. Somebody is may not look like they're doing as much. It's like, well, I'm just holding this paddle kind of in between you and the glass while you manipulate it. Um, well, that's keeping you from burning, giving you a little bit more time to do the work. Um, any one person on the team can break the piece. And you saw that we worked on that for three and a half hours. Well, there's another five hours that you didn't see in preparing for that three and a half hour slot, making all the parts, making all the color preparations. And again, the team is so important. And so like you develop these relationships. I've worked with a lot of these guys for years, you know, and it's one of the guys I've worked with, uh, for the most amount of time. He started, you know, working together when he was 19 and now he's all grown up and off in Denmark right now. And I'm like, dude, I, you know, it's like, you're like, come back, buddy. You got to go do that. But <laughs> it's like, uh, you feel it cause you, you work together so uh, so much, you know, you really depend on somebody again, the band analogy kind of being in harmony, just hitting that note at the right time. This is when it comes together and it's not that it can't be done with another team, but you really develop a rapport with people that you work with. Yeah. 
there were some edge of my seat moments when I was watching them oh. put, put, it, put it back in the oven. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a thousand to 1300 degree oven and yeah. this hole that, you know, if you get too close to the edge, it's going to break the glass. It's yeah. going to ruin the well, project. It'll stick. Absolutely. That, so that hole is actually 2300 degrees, uh, the, where they keep reheating it. And, uh, you know, glass really only has this small window of workability somewhere between, you know, 13, 1400 up to about 2200 degrees, which we work the glass at. Oh my gosh. And so there's like, you're just constantly, uh, trying to ride this wave of movability, not overheat it. Again, that's another thing that the person that's, so when that assistant is, is flashing the piece, it's like, a, again, if you're kind of entrusted, you're like, go get it hot, but not too hot. This like Goldilocks sort of don't fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> no, you can say fuck. Yeah. That's right. right. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, there you get, you know, and you've just got to break so many eggs to make these omelets, you know, there's so many behind the scenes that you just, you know, you know, and that's how you learn. And if you could just separate yourself from that monetary thing, uh, that's why a lot of times when, you know, I've taught a lot, I just got done teaching at the university of Washington in their glass program and around the country and the world for that matter. You know, I'm not, teaching isn't my calling, but that's kind of how you, you know, I've learned from so many great teachers and mentors and, but that's what, what I would say is you've got to get over that, that cost. You know, it's, it's hard for me when I'm spending $2,500 on my day, when the piece breaks, it's like, you just got to like move on to the next thing. You can, you know, you don't have this long period of mourning. You've got to like, okay, what's next? You've got to, you know, we got to move on. We can't <laughs> sit here and, uh, fret over that. And it takes a long time to get to that point. Um, is, I mean, it still hurts, but it, you, yeah. know, you know, you know, you've got to, you got to, got to move on. Is teaching uh, just kind of giving back for you? Or oh yeah, what? absolutely. Yeah. In two weeks, I'm teaching a class with my sister who is also a great artist and, you know, somebody I, we share this passion of glass together. It's such a, you know, I feel so grateful that we came into this on separate paths unbeknownst to each other, which is really kind of an odd story. Uh, but that we can share it, and then we will be teaching a, a group of uh, Pacific Northwest Native uh, tribal youth uh, from, you know, Tulalip, Swinomish, and uh, Lummi is the tribe that we're enrolled in. And, uh, you know, it started last year with just the Lummi Youth Academy and then some kids from the high school. And it just, it, you know, you feel guilty for, you know, <laughs> feeling so good about, you know, it just, you got to get back. That's that's where the, the great work is. Whenever you have done volunteer work or stuff like that, it's, you know, that's a... Uh, being a service in this world yeah. is, is the way to, to go. Well, no, nobody ever gets risk teaching. No, you know, no, anybody. you don't. And but it's it's about more than that. Yeah, and I guess I I didn't. Yeah, I just don't know that I have I haven't really pursued a path as a teacher, but I end up in that role from yeah. time to time. So your sister, just so we can plug her, what's her name and uh, where where can we see her work? Ray Friday. And she has a great exhibition right now at the Whatcom County Museum in Bellingham and the Light Catcher Gallery. She has a, a incredible sculpture. It's over a ton of glass. It's uh, really phenomenal. It's different than the glass blowing, uh, which is the approach I do where you run it back and forth to the bench from the glory hole gathering out of furnace. What she did is she ladled the glass out of a furnace into these huge sand molds in an oven. So these are really large scale. It's it's a installation size piece. Anyway, so yeah, it's up for another few months. And she does quite a bit of blowing too. We have some work at the Tacoma Museum of Glass right now. There's a great exhibition up of uh, both of our work and uh, a lot of uh, these two tribal families from the Evergreen State College Longhouse, which is 
I feel really fortunate to have done a bit of work with them. It was a, a program kind of, you know, for indigenous students to uh, learn indigenous ways and also, you know, just a, a, to have a place on a really modern college campus. It was originally the brainchild of my aunt Pauline Hilaire. So, uh, again, I feel like, again, I'm trying to just bring my ancestors forward with a lot of the work that I do most recently and uh, feel grateful to be part of a, a long line of artists in my family. Well, wh- one of those famous artists is uh, your great-grandfather, Hilaire, last name Hilaire? Yeah, Joseph Hilaire. Joseph Hilaire, who was yeah. a totem pole carver, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And then your grandmother was a basket weaver? Uh, my Aunt Fran. Oh, aunt, okay. Aunt Fran James, uh, colloquially. Uh, you know, the venerable auntie of uh, our tribe. Her son is the chief of our tribe. Of the Lummi tribe? Yeah. And so she's not my aunt directly, but Aunt Fran is kind of the title of. Yeah. And she was was actually really large and helping push me at about, I'd say about 12 years to just kind of like, what are you, you know, what are you doing with uh, this material? You know, you've got to go out and make, you know, I had spent 12 years to that point working with, uh, you know, Dale, that's a great place to work. It's a, you know, it's a respectable job to have in this industry, but making my own work and kind of giving me the courage, you know, I don't have all these degrees. I'm not, you know, I, my path isn't the same as a lot of the people that make the, you know, the really traditional art, art speak sort mm-hmm. of thing. You didn't and come through academia. I didn't. And, uh, so, you know, she was really instrumental in kind of giving me that like nod. And it's so weird that you, you know, I'm like, oh, that's right. I am an artist. I've always been an artist. Uh, and, you know, the, that whole where you can kind of hold yourself back about being anointed of like, okay, now you may step forward, my son, and you may rise and uh, make your work. And so in, in, a, in a way, she did that for me, too. So do you feel like the family lineage and your ancestors played a part in who you are today as an artist? Yeah. And I get to explore that quite a bit. And I, that's why I'm, every artist is like, well, I hope I can just make work that speaks for itself. But I mean, this work has also been an exploration for me just into my own culture, uh, my, you know, my family history, you know, I find great inspiration there. I also try and blend it with this, you know, glasses. This also really got this great history and it's, uh, trying to find this place in between design and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, this historical, you know, art of, you know, the, some of the, these things are artifacts that I study. I most recently have had, I've done a lot of work with the Burke Museum in uh, Seattle at the University of Washington and uh, it allowed me very generously to study in their archives and anthropology and just kind of all the, you know, the artifacts of my family. So to hold my great, great grandfather, uh or Frank Hilaire, to hold his personal effects with his name scratched in the side of it is like, you know, that's, that's really personally powerful for me. And hopefully from that, I can create stuff that again, kind of brings, uh, you know, tells the story of, uh, Lummi people, Coast Salish people, uh, you know, in, in, in a, in an aesthetically pleasing way, you know, too, I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I really, I like design too. I like to find, you know, I, I like to find that intersection between those things. Yeah. You know, what I did notice looking at your work online and, and also the work at Stonington is that there's, you know, I'm not sure I would call it a signature, but there's definitely a aesthetic that is you, you know, when, yeah. you're, when you're looking at this work. How long did it take to find that part of being an artist where like the work 
is identifiable as something that you made? And how did you make that happen? I'm still working on that. And that is a, you know, that's a, that's a big compliment because, you know, I think as any artist, we learn from, uh, you know, especially in this, we learn from mentors, but trying to find your own voice in anything you do, man, that is the trick. And uh, to have the courage to do that, to to forgive yourself when you fail and to have the courage to, to do it again when you fail. And uh, I try a new, you know, and sometimes you get in a, you're like, well, I know what I've been doing and it, I've kind of created this uh, aesthetic or this thing, this, you know, how do I allow myself to try new things? And if it doesn't hit, you know, you just, you know, to keep it in the same vein or do I just go out on a limb or uh, I do work at, you know, I like it when it is cohesive, but it's, you got to give yourself the freedom to, to try to. Yeah. I, I think about other, you know, you were talking about music and playing in a band and the analogies yeah. between bands and, you know, glasswork. And the way I think about it is, the signature that you have is if you listen to blues music, anybody can, anybody who knows how to play three chords can play the blues. But if you hear a Stevie Ray Vaughn tune, yeah. you know, you're like, oh, this is Stevie Ray. Yeah. It's his own thing. And I think that's what you've accomplished through your work. I mean, you, you are very unique in this, in this space. Well, thank you. And I mean, I, again, after 24 years, it's like I said, it's all I've been working, you know, and there's so many hours that go unseen. And so like Stevie Ray, who's allowed to cover Jimi Hendrix's little wing, dude, Stevie Ray. Yeah. Right. And he makes it himself. He makes it his own. He takes this great thing that is, uh, you know, hit from his teacher, you know, it's like an homage to him. And it's like, yeah, dude, that Stevie Ray, like not, uh, not a lot of people can cover Jimmy and do it well, right? You know? but it's, you know, there you've got Stevie Ray big fan so uh yeah do you, do you find working for someone like dale chihuly that you are in some ways covering at times as a way to learn or at least in your last 20 years with him basically covered his tunes in a way until you became your own artist so yeah like jimmy on the chitlin circuit or the you know doing the all the stuff that you wouldn't recognize as jimmy hendrix music to create his thing yeah and i think that's a lot of just getting the chops you know, getting those hand skills. That's, uh, you know, and Dale's been largely supportive in my career. And, and I've learned so many things that are not even necessarily glass related. Maybe they've got, you know, a flavor of business or how you handle this sort of thing. And, you know, one of his, a quote or something I've heard from him, you know, more people will ever see a picture of your work than actually see it in person. And, you know, just uh, justifying like, oh, I need to get a photographer to, you know, a top notch guy to take these great photos uh, because this is how I'm representing myself. And there's there's things that I like that that I've learned from him from uh, just working in, you know, seeing his business. I mean, it's it's a unique it's a, a unique situation that he's in kind of. Let's talk about the business of glass blowing and glass art. You're in a space where you really can't sell prints of no. your, I mean, yeah. it's either you have the glass, you've bought it or you don't have it. Uh -huh. And it's, it's somewhere where you have to physically go see it. So what are the challenges as a business person who has to feed a family and yeah. you know put money into the 401k uh -huh. in this medium? Well, having that job for Dale is great. We'll start there because yeah. it's like, it's, uh, you know, I support myself largely on my work, but it is great to have that supplement of 
uh, you know, 30 hours a week working for him and he's really flexible. He'll let me bug out for a month and go have, you know, that's where he's been really supportive, uh, is to allow me to be an artist or to have shows and to, to do this and, you know, have this flexible schedule with the team. Dude, as a business, if you like got your MBA at Foster, you dub and you're like, well, let's just analyze your business. It's not a great investment. <laughs> you know, how does this work out on paper? But I am really fortunate. I've gotten to a place, you know, my accountant has been really helpful. And uh, I think hiring people that are good at what they do to do that as opposed to, you know, I've just recently got a bookkeeper. And but the fact that I even there's a need for that, you know, I do. I support my family making my art. It is. It is a business that's interesting. I'm somebody that creates things. There are no prints. I enjoy making the piece, I, you know, and I love what I do. There's that, you know, and it's like a, I find a lot of satisfaction in working with a team and when things go well and we're talking about what's for lunch, not everything, do it like this, do it like that. And when we have one of those seamless days, that's what's behind the scenes that nobody really sees. Uh, is that the time in the studio and the studio practice is, is really sacred to me in a way. But as a business, you know, it could break. It can break while we're making it. It can break when it's come out of the oven. It's in the cold shop. It's being cut. They can break it. It can break in shipping. You know, the guy at UPS had a bad day and just drop kicks your thing off the <laughs> loading dock or whatever. And it can break uh, at the gallery. It can break at the gallery. It could, It's a fragile thing. And then you've got to sell it. And it's like you're creating this thing. Uh, you know, that's why I appreciate these museum shows. Up till now, a lot of my work has been, you know, gallery motivated and galleries uh, exist to sell your work. It is great to uh, have your work represented. It's a huge honor. Stonington, you mentioned, they do a great job for me. Uh, Blue Rain, uh, the gallery I work with in Santa Fe has, you know, done huge, you know, I have a career because of working with these galleries. But to have these museum shows is is kind of another it allows you to, you know, while your work's in a museum, it's not for sale per se. You know, there's no, the docents aren't there trying to to close a deal or these people really have to fall in love with your work if they're going to reach out to you or, you know, find you online or find a gallery online. And so it is a, so in gearing up, I have a solo show, small plug at the Museum of Northwest Art in uh, May 2020. And that's a solo museum show. And where's that? Where's uh, LeConnor, Washington. Okay. And uh, it's an incredibly large, intimidating space for somebody who's worked at the gallery level. But uh, I'm going to curate some great work of uh, co-salish weavers. I'm going to have some of the collaborative work I've done with my sister, Lillian Pitt, and uh, my good buddy, Jason Christian, and just a couple of the other people I've worked with. But having a show like that is, is you know, it, it is making work you know, that, yeah, you do hope to sell, but you're trying to, that's where I have the story that you tell with your work, which is, I, I feel grateful that I am finding more and more ways to explore that. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. So for, for those of us who are not in the art world, is being invited to show at a museum a, um, 
sort of a step up in terms of accolades and recognition. Dude, it's a huge milestone. Yeah. You know, they're a solo show too. You know, it's one thing to have a piece in a group show, you know, and yeah, that is a huge milestone in itself. And, uh, you know, I've been working with a lot of these museums in the last couple of years. Like I said, the Burke Museum, they've recently collected a piece. They're having their grand opening this coming weekend. The Bellevue Art Museum in uh, the east side, they recently had a show called Glass-tastic, and it was a group show, and I had a piece in there. But again, it, it allowed me to kind of dream at this larger like installation level. The piece was about 16 by 20 by 20. That's not your typical gallery space setting. Uh, it got the People's Choice Award, and that was huge for me. You know, that's a great little kudos. Those, those are definitely big milestones to get involved. I'm working with MIAC in uh, Santa Fe the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture. We are working on another group show. But again, to have uh, this solo show coming up, that's a, a big act of faith by the museum. Santa Fe is a big art town. Dude, it's, it's sick. Yeah. yeah. So how did you get connected down there? Another one of my mentors I'd be remiss if I didn't mention is uh, Preston Singletary. You know, he's a, a well-known uh, Native American glass artist. And uh, we're kind of alumni of that same glass factory in Ballard called the Glass Eye. And uh, we met at Pilchuck at the Raising of the Totem Pole. That was a great session that he taught a, a class and brought in uh, a lot of carvers from Vancouver Island. And we erected the Pilchuck Totem Pole. And uh, just over the, you know, I've worked for Preston just a little bit, but I'd say where his mentorship has really been big is just kind of like, I give him a call. I'm like, hey, dude, what do you think about this? What's the next step? And he's he really kind of carved the path for a lot of other artists and his... uh the way he collaborates with other native artists who, again, might not have that access to glass. And, you know, I, I've learned a lot from uh, watching and, and just, uh, you know, his, he's, he's helped me out quite a bit. When you're a glass artist at your level, which I consider to be high operating at an extremely high level, how much of your work has an international um, connection? In other words, when you when you're showing your work in Santa Fe and throughout the Pacific Northwest, is that your main stomping ground? Are you all over the globe? Or are you seeking to go to Spain or France and show your work? Or what what is your your goal um, in terms of where you want to go geographically with this stuff? Well, that that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think where does the work resonate with people? Definitely in the Pacific Northwest, because that's a, a bit of the story that I'm telling. Definitely in the Southwest, the Native arts culture, the Native community is uh, huge down there, and it's so empowering for a Native person to go be in a city just surrounded with Native people, uh, the, all the Pueblos, and uh, just the, the day-to-day life. It's such a diverse place. you know. And some of the other galleries I work with, a great gallery in, in Florida, Habitat, and Chance Gallery in uh, Stockbridge, Mass. I have uh, some work in Canada at, at Ainsley Gallery there. Um, but where does it go on the world market? Um, you know, I'd say a lot of when I travel back east, I'm you know, there's the Smithsonian Museum back there, and I've I've done some work at the the museum in Manhattan. But it is amazing, you know, there's just not that native culture back there. The streets have a name that you can't pronounce, and they're like, "Where's that?" And that's a native name on this street in Manhattan. And there are, uh, you know, it's not that they're not there. That would be wrong for me to say. But there's just like when I go to Santa Fe. And in the Pacific Northwest, you definitely can still see this, you know, it's, I think just the evolution westward, you know, or as the, as the, uh, the continent is kind of expanded, but internationally, you know, I've, I've shown in, in Taiwan and 
a couple of places in Europe. I've traveled, I've worked and taught in other places, but again, for my work, yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, I've got a, in November, I'm going to work with a bunch of Maori uh, artists and uh, teachers and, uh, in New Zealand? Yeah, Aotearoa, as you would say it, the Maori way. Oh, say, wow. New Zealand. And I met a lot of them at the Evergreen State College. And that's been just a huge honor. Uh, they have such a, a strong culture and such a powerful voice. I mean, I mean, have you ever seen a haka, dude? You're just oh, like, yeah. Oh, man, <laughs> I know. And I think whereas a lot of tribes over here are uh, struggling to maintain their language, like these guys have a language. They have what they did, what was great was when they were, you know, when uh, colonialization was happening, they're like, okay, we're going to band together as this net blanket Maori coast to coast. Whereas like there was no communication, the tribes, they literally played the tribes against each other as they're coming to manifest destiny across the continent. And they're like, oh, you guys fighting over here? Oh, you guys need, you know, it's just kind of this whole, uh, their divisiveness between the tribes was kind of also, I think, expediated that whole Whatever happened, you know, the, the wheels of change have, have, have changed. But I think that uh, New Zealand has such a powerful voice as, as a group, the Maori people of all the tribes together under one, uh, you know, one people. And I think there, there was a lot, there's a lot that, uh, that they got right with that. And I'm sure there's political things where I'm putting my foot right down the back <laughs> of my throat where I'm not talking about it. But I'm really excited to go work with, and I'm not going to be doing any glass. I'm going to be doing some weaving. You can see around here, I've got all the cedar bark. Uh, I do these ropes. Uh, I've done a bit of wood carving and I do metal work. But I'm going to be doing, uh, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to be doing. Dude. I'm going to be working with clay, doing some weaving, doing some carving, uh, all great things uh, to help me grow as an artist. Um, and, and so I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So it sounds like your journey is not just creating, but you're trying to learn and make connections with other cultures. Oh, absolutely. You know, find similarities that allow you to connect with the Maori people. And, you know, I mean, your, your, um, family history and your tribal history, I'm sure there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah. You know? Oh, well, that's, I think that, so Lillian Pitt, who I've, uh, those two pieces over there at the end with the petroglyphs on them, those are, uh, are from our most recent collaboration. And she, was paramount and just kind of creating this Pacific rim. Uh, there's okay. They're right next to the anchors with a rope right there. Yeah. And then they're the two blown vessels. Mm -hmm. And there was some of the work at Stonington. Um, but we have done two large collaborations together where we created a bunch of work for her in the glass blowing studio, kind of using her motifs. And, uh, yeah, I was really honored to do that. But again, she has been paramount and just kind of creating this communication between the evergreen state longhouse and uh you know the pacific rim indigenous artists hawaii uh you know fiji tonga the maori we have people from alaska come to the last gathering and a lot of these tribal cultures they share so many things and if you go back actually my my grandmother uh my great grandmother was hawaiian she came over in the early 1800s and so we have you know, there's a, actually, you won't hear about it, but, you know, Smithsonian wrote a book about it in like 1900, but there was a huge Hawaiian community on the north of Orcas Island. Uh, you know, that's where it gets the name Joe Friday, or uh, uh, Friday Harbor uh, on Orcas Island. And uh, that was, uh, you know, Tanaka Man or, you know, 
so I've, again, I, I wouldn't, I'm enrolled Lummy. I'm a quarter Swinomish, quarter Lummy, but somewhere in there, there's Hawaiian kick. And I, if you saw my big toe, you'd be like, oh yeah, bro. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So your family is connected to Friday Harbor then? Well, right. just through the San Juans, yeah. you know, and so it's odd that we have the name Friday too. And I have not been able to find the connection. It's originally a German name, Freetag. And a lot of times, uh, you know, the tribal when they're, you know, so Frank Hilaire, you know, Hilaire is a French Canadian name. Obviously, my great great grandfather was not French Canadian, but his name, Haitalok, you know, was his traditional tribal name. And then you kind of are given a more, more civilized name or, you know, more westernized, common name. Yeah, yeah, westernized name. That's the word. Um, so a lot of times you would just adapt, adopt a last name. And I probably at one point, uh, Friday was free tag. Yeah. So, but uh, it works. So what what is the least favorite part, your least favorite part of this endeavor, whether it's the, the business aspect of it, the, the, the hustle, the unpredictability of the income? I mean, what is yeah. there a part of it that just bothers you? You know, I got no real complaints because if this was easy, I wouldn't be entertained. And everybody, I you know, when people see this for the first time, I'm like, how does not everybody want to do this? <laughs> it's not for everybody. Uh, all those things you mentioned. The what do I not like? I mean, I like when things are, you know, you know, I don't know what is it when things break. It totally can be crushing. There can be equipment failures, uh, lack of communication. Uh, Glasses made me a better communicator on the whole. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any one thing that just really stands out. I mean, there's the ins and outs of business. I feel really fortunate to be, you know, I, I don't know. I've heard some number and not to, to misquote, you know, but. As artists, people that identify themselves as artists, like uh, about 1% of those people make a living doing it. So I feel like I'm pretty fortunate. And uh, anything that I would complain about is also one of those things that is like uh, a risk. Okay, here, I would say this. You know, it's nice to get rewarded financially or have this commerce or business attached to it. But I'd say part the one thing that I is getting enough sleep and time for my family. Like, I do, I wear all the hats in my business. I do the packing, shipping, driving, uh, oftentimes the welding, uh, oftentimes the cold work. And so I'm running this business that has, I have all these deadlines, you know, I've got to be there. It's the museum show. Don't screw that up. Da da da. And so I, you know, when people, when you're an independent, when you're a business owner, you're like, I could just take today off and tomorrow. What are you going to do about that? Nobody to complain to, but more often than not, I work 16 hour days for a week straight, four hours of sleep a night for weeks on end. Uh, because I want this, it's, you know, I've, I've spent 24 years creating this and I, you know, I'm not gonna, I have a hard time turning it over, right. you know, and it's like, <laughs> where do I start? And so again, I, I, that's really, uh, nice of you. I mean, I, I feel like I definitely have arrived at a place where I am pretty happy. I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm at this a level artist business. I'm happy to be at this B team because the stress of managing even more people or having more people dependent on my artwork for their income is stressful. Mouths to feed. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, then it becomes more of a business. And like when things become, uh, you know, when the economy steps back or when the shows come, you know, or if I have a show that doesn't just sell out, uh, then I'm like, I can just pump the brakes real easy on my business. Yeah. And I can just go to, I'm working for Dale this week. I'm uh, stockpiling for winter. Uh, winter's coming. Or you know, I can just <laughs> do all the, uh, 
my business is a lot more maneuverable than other people's large art business. Most of the people that work for me are uh, independent contractors, you know, so, and they also work for other artists and come and go and shout out to Taylor and Denmark and uh, come back. <laughs> but uh, Seattle's great like that. There's so many other people that, you know, it takes to make this business. Like if it, I, I don't know that I'm ready for a full time. You can see my studio is at my house in my property. Yeah. I was so grateful to buy this house and have this uh, building here. And I could have a bigger space, but then with more comes more responsibility. And so trying to resist that a little bit. <laughs> so you mentioned the economy and a downturn in the economy. So do you find that the, the strength of the economy is directly correlated with your ability to sell art? I wouldn't say that I have my finger on the pulse of the economy is, but I wouldn't begin to know. You know, I definitely think when things are good, I did lose a few of the jobs I had. I was doing the Seattle shuffled thing in 2008 and working for whoever was paying that week. Oh, when the stock market crashed. Yeah. And yeah. so I went back to work for a Mercedes shop, you know, and I only did that and they would let me come and go one or two days a week. Uh, we do make a luxury item, you know, do you want uh shiny things to your, you know, the, the work has to really speak to you to buy it. Um, there's limitless other things to decorate your house with. People that are jewelers don't feel that as much because people, I, f I feel like jewelry is one of those things where you can you can wrap your head around the functionality of that immediately. Like, I look better with this shiny, pretty thing. Right. Uh, whereas, like, where do I put this in my house? Do I need to make space for this? Do or I need like, to for instance, a glass basket. Yes. You know, which you can't put anything in unless, well, you could put flowers in it, I imagine. It but catches light. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it also could break. And if your cat is a little too rambunctious or, uh, yeah, tries to get in there. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it you know, I, again, I, I keep a job. I keep my businesses. It's kind of, I'm having a moment, I guess. And I am not hesitant to have it grow, but I, I don't know that I would want more than I have right now if it could just kind of cruise like this. Yeah. It'd be, well, do, do you find that there's a certain degree of mission creep that happens that's sort of out of your control where, okay, you want to stay at the B level because you don't want to be the Dale Chihuly that has the staff that has, and then you're, oh, you're paying man. out health benefits and it's a whole new level of responsibility. But at the same time, you're doing museum shows now. It's going to be inevitable if you continue on this trajectory that you're going to be pulled into feeding people. <laughs> through, you know, having more mouths to feed and more responsibility. But do you, do you find that it's, it's difficult to resist that type of momentum? Well, I feel like I'm doing the work and I think that's what is different than not even just the physical work that I'm producing, but the work of working with the tribes or kind of getting some of these messages out. Uh, my bigger piece from the Bellevue Art Museum, the Schwala, just kind of bringing that uh, exposure to these things that people wouldn't know. I, I am driven to make it, you know, I'm going to be doing it. Um, I find, uh, I find a lot of satisfaction in that. As a business, yeah, I, you are kind of riding the wave. And as the museum shows come, I'm in the business of saying yes. I have a hard time saying no. Great opportunity coming, da, 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 da. There was a perfect example last night or two nights ago. There was a, right when we got back from camping, there was a event from, they just did a visit Seattle, did a small film piece on me and uh, they had a, a party for the company and it's like, I need to go shake hands and thank all the people and be, you know, and just to show up and do, there's, that's a big part of the business too. The, yeah. the, you know, just the, 
remembering people's names and, and doing all that. And I, I feel like I'm pretty good at it, but I was just completely fried. You know, I literally sat down to put my shoes on and passed out. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know where all the, the time is going to come. Um, and you have from, kids, right? I have kids and, and you know, a wife and, and wife and all the other, you know, I've got three kids, um, two, five and 20. So I've got a big spectrum there. Um, yeah, but all the things that go in, into doing that is, uh, what, what do you do with your, your, your own children to instill in them the fearlessness that you and your ancestors have had going into a space that is not very conventional? And, and where you're making art, which I think is one of the most courageous things to do vocationally, mm-hmm. because it's, it is probably one of the most difficult things to do and make a living at, as opposed to going to a trade school or college and business school and that type of thing. But what are you, what kind of conversations are you having with your 20 year old, probably your, your younger ones are too young to talk about their future in that way. But as a parent, I wonder what we are doing or not doing when it comes to encouraging them to be in the arts and what we should be talking to them about. You know, and you, you hit on a lot of things, you know, the fearlessness. I, I appreciate that. I get the courage from that from my great grandfather, Joseph Hilaire, who as a totem pole carver, as a Coast Salish totem pole carver, and uh, the way he did his carvings at the time was uh, questionable or blasphemous to use a chainsaw to fell a tree and rough it out, and which is just modern practice now. And I know that he caught a lot of, of grief for his, uh, you know, the way he carried himself and he was really open with uh, people that were settling. And, uh, you know, he kind of wanted to create that uh, communication between the tribes and the settlers and uh, was lar- he did a lot of work with the unions to get the, the unions to hire native workers. And, uh, you know, just to, to, not to say that you don't need to ask permission to make your work again, I, Aunt Fran, you know, like where you feel like you need to be, uh, you know, you need to be chosen to create, or once I get my degree, I'll be allowed to be an artist. Uh, I went to a fancy art school in Seattle called, uh, the Northwest school, which is like a high school, junior high, kind of like a fame people yeah ballet you know ballet in the halls and you know 12 people in the class went to alternative schooling growing up and i've always been an artist we didn't have a tv we worked with our hands uh quite a bit and uh i've always been an artist but it just didn't seem pragmatic that's why i went to vocational school i'm like okay this school i'm making money working on cars as a 16 year old i think i'm gonna keep making money and just it just didn't even occur to me and that's why when i went in to the factory uh, it was such a, a weight lifted off my shoulders that I could find this industrial setting to make work. So what do I tell my kids? I think I'm definitely dealing with one of my children is definitely an artist. Um, my oldest son is is a sharp, pragmatic kid. He's working on. He's going to college to be a biologist, but he also works in a farm and is just a really resourceful person. And uh, get a lot of that from my mom and. That survival, it's just a different world we live in these days, too. Uh, you know, just working on the farm, just being really resourceful, uh, you know, like in our grandfather's day, you know what I mean? You just get out there and fix it and do it. And, you know, making art, I, I think it's something you either want to do or you're driven to do or not. I think the market, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, you, 
go ahead and just choose art as a vocation. I feel like you're kind of nominated by the market to a degree too. Yeah. You know, it's like I can spray paint or make whatever. I can do all these things, but until there's an outlet to generate money, whether that's teaching, whether that's commissions, whether that's installations, whether that's gallery sales, whether that's direct sales, um, I guess you can't really say that you are doing it as a vocation until you're getting paid for it. And right. I feel like that's that's kind of the market speaks to that, right? And you also need a calling too, right? I mean, yeah, oh, dude, you, stubborn doggedness to, to just yeah. continue. You know? <laughs> um, many failures. I think, like I said, if glass was just easy, I wouldn't be entertained. You know, you wouldn't be entertained. What role does social media play for you as an artist in getting your brand and your art out there into the world? Uh, well, I do it, uh, and I hope that it does. You know, I don't. I I don't know that I have a large, uh, if there's any data that like indicates that it drives my sales a lot. Um, but I know that we're definitely kind of in this changing era where, uh, Uber doesn't own cars, you know, the whole, you know, Airbnb doesn't own hotels. The internet is this great leveler. Well, for in, in, even in education, if there's things that my son wants to learn, he's got the internet and he, uh, is a largely, uh, great at teaching himself. Um, my, he's actually 19, he's almost 20. He, uh, I mean, he's one of those people, he's a country boy. He lives on a, you know, he works on a, a farm or an orchard and anything he wants, he, uh, teaches himself from the internet. It's really kind of, uh, this great leveling sort of, of access. And, uh, yeah, I feel like we're, we're definitely on the edge of a new thing. Where does social media stand? I think it's good. It can be a little intense for me. You know, how much of my family do I share on there? Who do I, do I have another, it feels like a job sometimes. Like when I open it and I'm like tagged in this, I've got to comment on that. And do I, oh, I've got to make sure my, mo my most recent show is, am I plugging this right? right? Am I doing that? You're a curator too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, but it's great. I mean, it, it, it's how we found each other, I believe. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I obviously I support it. So. <laughs> um, you know, one question I failed to ask at the beginning and just in case listeners haven't seen your work yet is, you know, I don't know that I really asked you to describe the types of pieces that you make because we're, we're on an audio medium here oh, okay. um, you know yeah. i'm going to try to put pictures up on the, on the website and yeah. and and obviously point people to your website but what types of of uh, glass objects and artwork do you make and why uh-huh well it's interesting because as when you mentioned website it's like I, I don't do a great job maintaining that um so some of those photos are outdated i feel like more people will probably find me through instagram probably right the, yeah your actual web page. But what the pieces I make are inspired by, uh, again, a lot of the cultural learnings that I've, you know, been endeavored to, to, to kind of research and reach out to Oxalas or teachers in the tribe about like the reef net, the Shwala or the, uh, the baskets, uh, again, from the venerable auntie, aunt Fran James. Um, and, uh, you know, the totems, again, from my great-great-grandfather, Joseph Hilaire. These are all just little notes that are kind of throughout my work, or the inspirations of, of Coast Salish artists. And what is a totem, for those who don't know, who are listening? Well, uh, so in the Coast Salish sense, a lot of times they're totems or were like more house posts or storyboards. It's not a totem pole, again, in the typical, like, van. most people, when they hear Pacific Northwest uh, Native art, they go right to the 
you know, the Starbucks mug and think of the stuff that you see, the incredible work, the most incredible is, uh, you know, like the form line, uh, Clinkett, Haida, you know, uh, Quackutal, uh, anything in northern, northwestern Vancouver Island and through the Straits is, uh, co-salish or straight salish and there's that's just a really um a really popular style of uh native art but uh a lot of the work that that my family has done is co-salish work and uh it's it's just got a, a little bit of a different aesthetic they borrow things from each other yeah i'm sure and uh a lot of fish and bears yeah, fishing and, and speaking you know and so what is a totem it's like an effigy or a symbol uh you know do you you know are you a bear clan, eagle clan, swan family? You know what I mean? There's all okay. these different, uh, you know, animal identities that, that families will have. Uh, hate to luck the bear in our family. And so, uh, yeah, yeah I make bears. Yeah. So I make quite a few bears. <laughs> bears have been good. Great. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Instagram and so people can find you on Instagram. Where else can they find you? Uh, Fridayglass.com Instagram. Uh, that's kind of the main two for me right now. I'm, and you'll have announcements on Instagram and your website yeah, about I, upcoming shows. I do that. I do. Yeah. The big one I'm focused on right now is uh, the Mona Gallery Museum of Northwest Art in LeConnor, May 2020. I'm going to have a few pieces uh, showing coming up at the Chesterfield Gallery out of Manhattan. Is a, He's a rep out there. And then uh, in Habitat in Florida. And those are a couple. And, and again, it'll all be on my Instagram. That's that's what I mean. I feel like I run that one more about my uh, business, and then my Facebook is, you know, and check out my kids and they're <laughs> doing silly things. Dan Friday, thanks so much for yeah, your time. Awesome, Brian. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask: Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.